Hi, my name is Nathan, and I'm a sinner. All right. If you have your Bibles, go to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to dissect that passage toward the end of the sermon this morning. We will get there eventually, about three hours into the sermon. So, <clears throat> bye, Nathan. <laughs> See you guys. Preachers don't like talking about money. You know why? Recent survey concluded preachers would rather talk about hell than money. <laughs> That's something right there. The reason is because we always know there's people in the crowd who think that when preachers are talking about money, they have a self-interest involved in it. And so we know that deep down. We've heard the big story of the corrupt minister, the multimillionaire preacher, which actually represents about .0001% of all ministers who are like that. But we've heard the story on the big news, and so we think that many ministers are like that. So that has left us open for many jokes Kind of like this one. You may have heard about the rancher who called up the church office, and the secretary answered, and the rancher on the other end said, may I speak with the head hog? And the secretary was just flabbergasted. She was, I mean, she was offended. So we don't talk about our preacher that way. We don't talk like he's a head hog. We would never dream of calling our senior minister that. We love him. We respect him. Uh, we have honor for him. And so it, it would be beyond my wildest imaginations to ever call him something like a head hog. And so, no, he's not available. And the rancher said, well, I was just going to let him know that I just sold some property and I was wanting to give $100,000 to the building program. And she said, sir, you just stand in line. The big pig is walking in right now. <laughs> the question should not be, why are we talking about money the question should be, why did Jesus talk about money so much? He talked about money more than he talked about heaven and hell combined. One out of six verses in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is about money. 16 out of 38 parables that he gave was about money. There's 500 verses on prayer, 500 on faith, and 2,000 on the topic of money. His instructions are clear but are we following his instructions? Kind of like this peewee football team. Take a look at these kids. Did they follow their coach's instructions? <laughs> now, watch it. Watch the coach. Watch the coach. Watch the coach. <laughs> so, so that's kind of, that's kind of, I don't know if that's God's perspective. Why are they not following the instructions? But I, I do want you to know what God's perspective is on this. God doesn't want your money. He wants your heart. And because he wants your heart, he talks about money. Jesus did not say you cannot serve both God and Satan. He said you cannot serve both God and money. Why? Because he knew that money had the greatest potential to be our God substitute. He wasn't trying to get money out of people's pockets. He was trying to get idols out of people's hearts. Because his mission was not to make more money. It was to make more disciples. And so that's his perspective on this series. I want you to understand Venture Christian Church's perspective. Our perspective is this. We are not trying to get something from you. We are trying to get something for you. Do you understand? Now, what is it we want for you? Luke 6 would be a good example. Give and you will receive. 
your gift will return to you in full, pressed down, shaken together to make room for more, running over and poured into your lap. The amount you give will determine the amount you get back. Here's what your preacher wants for you. He wants you to live on the greatest adventure that you could ever live as a human being, and that is the adventure of following Jesus Christ. Are you with me? And we don't want you to miss out on that. And we don't want your finances and a love of money to get in the way of your relationship with God. And so here's today's lesson. Here it is right here. I don't know if you knew it, but you are a steward. Now, we don't know what that word means anymore because we don't have stewards in our society very often. Let me explain what a steward is. In those days when the owner of a ranch would leave his ranch... He would go for a long time because they didn't have Interstate 10 and they didn't have Grand Parkway where you pay $6 per mile to drive on Grand Parkway. That's another stewardship problem with the city of Houston, Texas. But anyway, so they would go for a long time. It'd be weeks, it'd be months, sometimes it'd be years. And so they would put a manager or a steward, they would hire some sharp guy or gal to overlook the ranch. Now, they didn't have Skype. They didn't have FaceTime. They didn't have cell phones. They didn't have the internet. They didn't have email. So he couldn't contact back all the, hey, how's it going? So when he got back in a couple years, who's the first guy he's looking for? He's going to go find that steward, and he's going to ask him, first question, what did you do, and how did you do with the ranch that I entrusted to you? That was a steward at that time. Did you take care of what I entrusted to you? You and I, we are stewards. Now, you may not know this, but the very first command in your Bible in Genesis 1 is about stewardship. God made this, God made that, God made this, God made that. And then he gets to the end of chapter 1, and he looks at Adam, and he says, now you take care of it all. It's mine, but you take care of it. And so I want to give you four good stewardship principles this morning that will help us be good stewards. Number one, stewardship requires proper perspective. We've discussed several biblical principles in this series, but there's one that we keep coming back to. Every sermon has had this in it, and it is this point right here, three words. God owns everything. Would you say it with me? God owns everything everything. We will never be faithful stewards of God until we hold on to this truth. Psalm 24 verse 1 says, the earth is the Lord's and, what's the next word? Everything Everything in it. Job 41, God said to Job, everything under heaven belongs to me. Psalm 50 verses 9 through 11 says, I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens for every animal. The forest is mine. And there's the line that we're so famously quoting all the time, and the, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains, and the insects in the fields are mine. Now, you know what that means? God not only owns the cows, he owns the bugs. And we all say, you can keep the bugs, God, and we'll keep the beef. No, that's it. And then, that's bad preaching. Verse 12, if I were hungry, I would not tell you For the world is, now there's a four-letter word, mine. mine. We're going to come back to that. And all that is in it. One of the first words a little kid learns is the word mine. That's mine. That's my cup. That's my pizza. That's my remote. That's my toy. You don't even have to teach it to them. Have you noticed that? We didn't teach them the word mine. 
We've taught them other words like daddy and mommy and Bible and Astros. You know, we teach them other words, but we didn't teach them the word mine. Yet they figured out that word from a very young age, which is just more proof of their depraved, sinful little hearts. <laughs> there has been a battle going on from the day you were born about who owns your stuff. That's what that proves. Is it God's or is it yours? And Satan puts it in our mind at a very young age. It's mine. But God says everything is his. This is a top-button truth. You know what a top-button truth is? Top-button truth means, uh, do you know when you miss your top button what happens to the rest of the buttons? They're all uneven. They're all misaligned. And if we miss this truth, our entire perspective of discipleship and following Jesus is misaligned. If you don't like that truth, all of your other buttons will go out of whack. Now, we should be teaching this from a young age, that God owns it all. A good activity for your family whenever you leave church today, if you have kids or grandkids or nieces or nephews, when you leave this building today, you ought to turn around with your kids and say, God owns that building. And you ought to get in your car and teach your kids, God owns this car. And when you get home and pull up in the driveway, you ought to look at your house and ask your kids, whose house is this? And they ought to say, that's God's house. God owns this house. And when you sit down for, uh, for dinner, and you ought to do this for every meal, Whenever you pray, what you're basically saying is, God owns this food. He's the one who gave us this food. And when you sit down and watch a television program, you ought to teach your kids, that's God's TV. And when you watch the Houston Texans on TV, that is God's team. And when you watch the Cowboys, that is Satan's team. I lost some of you there. <laughs> Let's keep the finger pointing to after church. We can go outside and handle it there, okay? I think it's very Christian. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> now, if you don't like this truth that God owns everything, you're really not going to like this. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Not only is your money God's, you aren't even your own. I belong to God. You belong to God. We were bought at a price. What price was that? It was a high price. He gave his very best. He owns everything. Now, that has some heavy implications. That means that your body isn't yours. You ought to take care of your body. That means that the environment we live in, we need to take care of the environment we live in as well. Because that's not ours, that's God's. This is God's planet. It means our relationships. My wife is not my wife, it's his daughter. I am taking care of the daughter of the king. My kids, they're not my kids, they're God's kids. And it means that my finances are not my finances, they're God's finances. But the largest implication is this. It means that we are not self-sufficient. Did you know that? We are not self-sufficient. God warns the Hebrew people whenever they're leaving Egypt, 40 years they're in the desert, they're about to enter the promised land. God gave them the manna, God gave them the water, God gave them their clothes, God gave them protection. And it hits God in Deuteronomy chapter 8. It, it, it hits God, oh, they're going to walk into the promised land, they're going to start doing well, they're going to have big houses, they're going to start bringing home the bacon. Hebrews won't be bringing home any bacon, but you get the idea. They're going to be doing really well, and it hit them. They're going to start thinking it was them, aren't they? And so he says in Deuteronomy chapter 8, beginning with verse 17, he says, you, you might say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, 
For it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. When we grasp that, right there, now listen. When you grasp that, no, I mean really grasp it, you won't be able to help but praise God. You can't help it. You know why people don't praise God? Because they haven't grasped that everything they have has come from him. The last psalm, Psalm 150, the last verse in the last psalm, verse 6, and the last line in the last verse of the last psalm puts it this way. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. If you can breathe, you should be thanking God because that's not your air you're breathing. That air has been given to you from him. We tend to thank God only for the moments that take our breath away, and we never stop to thank God that we can take a breath. So if you grasp it, you will. Praise God. Stewardship, number two, requires constant intention. Constant intention. Now, I'm about to give you some nuts and bolts of finances. This is very practical, what I'm about to give you. Stewardship requires a plan. I'm going to talk about Chelsea and I's plan here for a second. I'm going to mention somebody else's plan in this church that, uh, that they emailed me this week. But I want to first tell you why I am going to share with you some of the details of the Bolt finances. I, I wouldn't have done this years ago. But there is some theology, theological shifting that I've done on this. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good works. Let us consider how we may challenge each other. Let us consider how we may push each other toward love and good works. Now, we do that with everything else. With compassion, we cheer each other on and we share it. With Sandman's, we cheer each other on and we share it. We're going to have an angel tree that Melissa and the Sandman group got. We're going to blow that up here after, after church and the announcements. A lot of you have seen it already. And we cheer each other on and that spurs us on toward love and good works. But for some reason with money, do you know what we've done? We say, shh. You don't talk about money? I won't talk about money, okay? We, we, we just won't talk about it. And we never spur each other on. The Bible says when you give, don't, don't do it with the motive to be seen. But it doesn't say you can't be seen. What's wrong is not being seen. What's wrong is the motive, if your motive is to be seen. But if your motive is to spur each other on, that's a good motive. Matthew 5 says, let your light so shine so that others may see your good deeds. Spur one another on. So I'm gonna share with you prayerfully with the motive, <laughs> not to be seen, but that this spurs on and that this stewardship is contagious. By the way, if you're wondering what you should do with your finances, I'll just tell you this. You won't be in heaven for five minutes before you realize what you should have done with your finances. You will be in heaven for five minutes and you'll look around what God has prepared and what God has built and what God promised and you'll look to see the happy souls that are walking around, you will know in that moment what you should have done with your finances. There will be no more questions asked. But we don't have to ask here either. God has told us. So let me share with you a testimony. This is Val Jones. She grabbed me after church last Sunday and said, have you heard about our financial story? I said, I have not. And she emailed it to me. So this is Jay and Val Jones's, uh, this is her email to me this week. And I'm glad she sent it. I asked her to send it for this very purpose, to spur one another on. When we first started attending church, we were both working full-time and living paycheck to paycheck. We felt compelled to give, but only what we could afford. We would get paid, pay all of our bills, do whatever we had planned, and buy what we wanted, and then see what we had left. We would give $25 a week at the most. 
if we felt we had enough left until the next paycheck. Some weeks we didn't have enough left. We had made a lot of other changes to align our lives with his word, but money was not one of them. As we grew in our walk, we realized we were not being obedient with our finances. So one payday on faith, it always starts with faith, doesn't it? We started giving 10% every week. This was about 10 times the $25 leftover check, like how you said that, leftover check, we would give occasionally. And guess what? We still had enough to pay our bills and plenty of food on the table. And Jay's body shows that completely. I'm kidding. That wasn't even, you're skinny. I don't even know why I said that. It's just, it's just a bad personality on my part. Um, <laughs> you're a skinny guy. I don't even know why I said that. Anyway, eventually, we were blessed with the wisdom to get out of debt and add children to the equation. There are thousands of ways of being obedient in this. The last five, 15 years has blessed us. There are thousands of ways being obedient in this. The last 15 years has blessed us. To name a few, our marriage continues to grow with less stress and arguing. When unexpected expenses come up, he always makes a way. Would you thank Val for sending that? Yeah. It started with faith. And have you ever heard the line, you can't outgive God? And I don't know if they have a million dollars in the bank or not. I don't know if that's how God's blessed them, but she said it there. Their marriage was blessed. And he says he'll give you a blessing. And I would say a marriage blessing is greater than a financial blessing. God always proves to be faithful. So a lot of people have the idea, I'll be a good steward someday. But they never become a good steward because someday is never today. Today is the best day to be obedient to God's word. Rick Ashley said, you will not do then what you will not start now. And so here's one plan. I've heard this plan preached. I've heard it taught. It's the 10-10-80 rule. Has anybody heard of the 10-10-80 rule? Nobody. Okay, so this is, this is the 10-10-80. First 10% goes to the church. Next 10% goes to saving, and then you live on 80%. That's a good plan. You, you can adopt that plan if you want. I'm not going to preach to you a plan that you need to adopt. Um, I heard that preached. I heard that taught. It didn't work for the bolts. It doesn't work for the bolts because there's a thing called taxes. I don't know if this person has never heard of taxes, uh, but there's a th it, that just doesn't work in our situation. But there, there's a plan. There's intention there, and I like that because good stewardship requires good intention. Here's our plan, and this is so memorable. <laughs> okay, so you're not going to remember my plan, our plan, but this is our plan. And I'm simply showing you that we have a plan. I went back in our finances this last week and did some more details to our, to our math and what we've been given. And I had discovered over the last year that actually our offering to the church was not 11%. I told you 11%. It's actually 13.4%. So that's our giving to the church. The next number is 153 does anybody know, do we have any business owners or self-employed? Does anybody know what 15.3 means? Somebody knows. Social Security, right off the top. Some of you don't know because it's already taken out of the check and your employer takes care of some of it. But ministers are considered self-employed, and so we pay the self-employment tax, which is right off the top, 15.3%. Now, see, 101080 doesn't work for us because it doesn't involve, the, it's a, where's the 15.3 going? That's a lot. So 15.3 goes to Uncle Sam. Actually, technically, it's supposed to come back to us later, and we'll see if that actually happens. 
It won't. Thanks, Jim, for the encouragement spurring me on. Uh, Ten goes to saving. We put it into saving. A large percentage of that goes to retirement, and some goes towards saving next car, next whatever. So 10% goes to saving, and then we live on 56.3%. We live on 56.3% of our income, which only adds up to 95%. Does not add up to 100. Now, why do we leave five for margin? For sacrificial giving. We want to be able to, when a family comes to us and say, we don't have Christmas toys this year for my kiddos, or we don't have food for Thanksgiving, to be able to say, we left some margin for sacrifice, uh, sacrificial giving above the 13.4. Now, you're not going to remember those numbers, <laughs> and I'm not telling you to adopt those numbers. I'm simply telling you, you ought to have a plan. You ought to at least know what you're doing. Because if you don't have a plan, what's going to end up happening with those numbers? It's going to be 100% for me. I'm going to serve myself rather than God and his agenda. You not only should have a plan for how much you give, you ought to have a plan for how you give. Chelsea and I, more details, Chelsea and I, we write a physical check which goes into the offering every other week. We don't write it every week. We write a 13.4% check over two-week span every, just because checks cost money. Uh, that's why we do that. And if we ever miss church, if we miss venture, we will back pay the next week what the previous week's 13.4% is. We do it physical check. But if we were not consistent on that, and I didn't feel like we could be trusted on that, I would go to the website, venturekatie.com, and we would fill out, we would make it through our bank account where I knew that was coming out every single week. So you not only should have a plan on how much, you ought to have a plan on how you do it. So stewardship, good stewardship requires constant intention. Number three, stewardship requires genuine gratefulness. If you're bitter about this series, you won't keep giving. If you're mad deep within your heart that the preacher's pulling my leg, this won't last. And if you're going home thinking, you know what, I don't think this is, this is even biblical, then you'll just go back to serving yourself. And if you're an ungrateful, spoiled little brat, that's what will stop this. In six, in six months from now, the giving will have stopped because of a lack of gratefulness. Here's the deal. You are as rich as you think. You are as rich as you think. Now, let's stop and think so that we can stop and think. We don't think because we don't think. So for a few minutes, the next few minutes, I'm going to make you uncomfortable. Put on your seatbelts. The next three minutes of your life will not feel good. But I'm going to try to persuade you that you are rich. Do you ever think about tomorrow? You ever think about what you're going to eat tomorrow? You ever think about what you're going to wear? Do you ever plan out for meals? Some of you have already planned out for Thanksgiving meal. That's like three weeks away. If you have the luxury of planning out beyond today, you are rich. Most of the world cannot plan past today. But if you can, you're rich. Have you ever gotten your teeth worked on or cleaned by a dentist? You're rich. Most of the world has not. My senior year in college, I was playing third base. I dove into a third, uh, an area around third base to tag a runner. I hyperextended my arm at the elbow spot. It went the wrong way. Guess what the medical staff did there? They immediately took me to some training place. They put it back through some wiggling and moving and some screaming on Nathan's part. 
they put it back into alignment. They put heat and ice, heat and ice, heat and ice on it every day for the rest of the season so that I could play the rest of the season. And they got it fixed. They put it back into alignment. You know why they were able to do that? Do you know why I was able to have that kind of treatment? Because I was rich. I was an American, and we were rich. You know what happens in most of the world? If you break a finger or break an arm or misalign something, you live the rest of your life with a crooked finger. You live the rest of your life with a crooked arm or a crooked leg. But I didn't have to do that because we were rich. Have your kids ever played a sport or taken dance lessons and you bought a uniform, leotard, cleats? If you have, you're rich. Have you ever paid for a babysitter? Have you ever paid money to somebody else for them to watch your kids? That is mind-blowing to the rest of the world. You are rich if you have. Do you have a car? Raise your hand if you have a car. Some of you don't know, but by the world standards, you are really rich. Do you have two cars? You are filthy rich. Some of you have a car for every person in your house. In fact, your cars have a house. They don't sleep outside at night. They have a roof over their heads. However, most Americans with a two-car garage don't put their cars in the garage because we have so much stuff <laughs> that we don't know what to do with it, so we put it in our car house. We put it in the garage. We are upgraders. We upgrade all the time. Do you know what I'm talking about? We have perfectly fine clothes that fit or appliances that still work, or cars that still drive, or a couch that still sits, and we get rid of it simply because we want something else. That is called upgrading. So we do this with our phone. Our phone still texts. It still calls. Your phone knows how stocks are going. It knows the 10-day forecast. You can get movie tickets on your phone. You know where the local traffic jam is from point A to point B. But then the new phone can launch missiles and do heart surgery, so my old phone is a piece of junk. So we upgrade to the new phone. That's how rich people think. Rich people are generally not content with what they have because they have the money to get something else. Jesus had thousands of mouths to feed, and he only had a few fish and a few loaves. And what did he do before he fed them? He prayed and gave thanks. And then God performed the miracle. You know what we do? We say, God, you perform the miracle, and then I'll say thanks. Jesus did it the other way. He said thanks, and then God performed the miracle. We say, yeah, God, if you take care of me, then I'll say thank you, when in fact we should be thanking him for what he has given us and then watch him come through the rest of the way. You are as rich as you thank. Colossians 3.17 says, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Psalm 100 says, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. We live in a perpetually dissatisfied culture. Let me just give you a warning. Over the next month and a half, all the advertisements that you see and hear, they're going to have one goal in mind, and, and that is to make you dissatisfied with what you have and make you think that you deserve something better come Christmas time. And what is wrong with that is the second you think you've earned it and then you receive it, you won't be grateful for it if you think it's owed to you. Number four, Finally, stewardship 
requires wise investing. I want to read a passage to you in Matthew chapter 6, and I want you to read it with new eyes. I want to give you a truth out of this that I almost never hear anybody talk about. But here's what Jesus said in this famous passage, beginning with verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. Verse 20. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let me give you something new on this. We have an unfortunate tendency to grab a passage because we think we're so smart, and we like to do this thing called digging in and finding stuff that's not there and, be, and consider ourselves great scholars. And that's what we've done to this passage. Let me just give you the surface truth of what is in Matthew 6, verses 19 through... You don't even have to be a Christian to get this. You don't have to be a believer. You don't have to be a God-fearer. You're going to understand what Jesus said here if we just pull back for a second and look at what he said. In verses 19 and 20, he did not say it's wrong to invest. He did not say that. Here's what he said. Use your brain when you're investing. Make the better investment. You have two places to invest, and this one over here, thieves are going to steal it, and it's going to rust away and burn away. And this one over here, no thieves can get it, no rust, no moths, no vermin is going to get it, and it's going to last forever. Just use your brain. Which one should you invest in? He didn't say don't invest. He just said make the best investment. Make the wise investment. Make the just, just make the practical investment. Which one should we invest in out of those two options? Let me give you an example. If it's the Civil War, it's 1864. That's the year the Civil War ended. If you live in the Confederacy and you can tell, I can tell the Union's about to win. I, I don't know when it's going to happen, a few months, a few weeks. It may happen in a few days. I can tell the Confederacy's going to fall. And you have all this Confederate money. What would you do with all your Confederate money when you know that whenever the war's over, your Confederate money is not worth anything anymore? What, what would you do with it? Let me tell you what you would probably not do with it. You would probably not start investing in Confederate stocks. You would not start investing in Confederate currency. You would not put your investment in a retirement plan in the Confederate 401k. That wasn't a thing, but you, you, you get the idea. You wouldn't start investing in Confederate currency. If you did that, and then all of a sudden, the war ends, and now it doesn't worth anything. People would look at you like, why would you do that? But if you knew the war was coming to a close, and the Union's about to win, and your Confederate money isn't worth anything, what would you do? You would take your Confederate currency, and you would start investing in the Union and you would trade it for union currency because you know in a few weeks or a few days or a few months, that's the money that's going to count. That's going to be worth something. You would probably still keep some Confederate currency for the daily needs of food, clothes, and shelter just to get you through till the end. Here's what we've done. I don't know if you've caught the point yet. Have you caught the point? We've taken this, and we've invested it in Confederate currency. And we know there's a war going on. The battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers. It's, it's, it's not a flesh and blood war. We know there's a war. We know who's going to win. And we don't know when the end of the war is, but it could be any moment. 
It could be days, it could be weeks, it could be months. And we keep investing in Confederate currency. And we know it's going to burn up. Or, Jesus says, just practically speaking, invest in what's going to last. Invest in what's going to be there forever. That's what he's saying in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 20. I want to close with this story. It's an amazing story. Heard a few years ago about a Christian couple from Northern California named Ken and C.J. Mansfield. They befriended a homeless man by the name of Garland. Uh, Garland lived behind their deli, the, the deli that they owned, and they made sure Garland had enough food every day to survive. One day, their deli got robbed, and the police just assumed Garland had done it because he had a basket with that deli's name on it. So they assumed he stole the basket. But the Mansfields assured the police, we actually gave him that basket to keep his belongings. And just to avoid further embarrassment, the Mansfields opened up their cash register in front of the police and just came up with a number and said, Garland, here's your change for $38.67. There you go. And the police left Garland alone. Three days later, Garland died. A couple weeks after that, a lawyer contacted the Mansfields and told them, Garland left a note, and he wants you to have everything that he owns. It's all in a travel bag. And he opened up the travel bag, the Mansfields opened up the travel bag, and there was nothing but a bag of birdseed, a Bible, and a bank book. And ironically, the last deposit made in the bank book was for $38.67. And the bank book was put inside the Bible in Matthew 25 next to a verse that was underlined that said these words, I was hungry and you fed me. And then they looked a little closer at the bank book and they noticed that the $38.67 had put Garland just over $3 million. Now, I don't tell you that story to tell you a prosperity gospel, which I don't believe in. I'm not saying if you give to God, he's going to give you $3 million. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is every time in Scripture that the owner of a ranch comes back and asks his steward, how did you do? If the steward was faithful, he always says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a little. Now I'm going to give you much. Enter into my joy and my place of rest. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus so often hit on the topic that we probably need to hear the most. And sometimes we forget how rich we are because we don't stop and think. Because we don't stop and think. Father, you have blessed us beyond measure. And now, Father, may we be good stewards of what you have entrusted with us. May we be a people that when the war is over, you can look at us and say, well done, good and faithful servants. Father, I thank you for this family of believers. I thank you that you love us unconditionally. When we fail, when we let you down, when we think about ourselves more than we think about you, you never leave us, you never forsake us. Thank you for your character. May we become more like you and be great givers. It is in Jesus' name we pray, amen.